Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. Tonight we're going to look at the seven bowl judgments. And uh, we've, had, um, we've had seven seals earlier in the book. We've had seven trumpets. And now we're at that point where it talks about the seven bowls. Now, before we dive in to kind of set the stage here, um, I was thinking about this and I found a proverb that kind of sums it up. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has prepared everything for His purpose, even the wicked for the day of disaster. And so God has a purpose for everything, including the, the wicked, for a day of disaster. Uh, one commentator said, as we go through the book of Revelation, the visions that John has focus more and more on the judgments of the second coming of Christ. And the judgments of the seven bowls remind us of the nearness of the, of the end, not only by speaking of seven last plagues, but by stating that with them, God's wrath is completed. And with that statement, I want to go back to chapter 15 just as a reminder to kind of link what we're fixing to do to what we just looked at last week. In Revelation 15:1, John said, Then I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven, seven angels with the seven last plagues, for with them God's wrath will be completed. And there was kind of some, he, you know, what he wrote in chapter 15 is kind of preparation for what we're going to see tonight in chapter 16 when you see bowl 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, just rapid fire, okay? Um, when you jump to Revelation 15, verse 5, going back to what John saw, he says, After this I looked, and the heavenly temple, the tabernacle of testimony, was open, and out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues, dressed in pure bright linen with golden sashes wrapped around their chest, one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And then the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. And now we jump into Revelation 16 verse 1. And John says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. And um, that's where we are for the moment. A couple of quotes for you. Um, one commentator, Alan Johnson, said, This chapter, that is Revelation 16, um, describes the outpouring of these seven bowl judgments. They occur in rapid succession with only a brief pause for a dialogue between the third angel and the altar, uh, which emphasizes the justice of God's punishments. And this rapid succession is probably due to John's desire to give a telescopic view of the first six bowls and then rush to the seventh where he gives us far more detail. It's the fall and the judgment of Babylon. And you'll see that as we, as we go through this. He goes through each of the bowls pretty quickly. A little bit more detail on the sixth and then the seventh. And then from the seventh, it goes into vivid detail. 
Now, in case you're wondering, because some people have questions, what's the difference between these bowls and the trumpets? That's a good question. I'll just briefly touch on that. The seven bowls have similarities to the seven trumpets, but there are differences. Uh, what I want you to realize is that the trumpets were warnings and calls to repentance. Okay, The trumpets served as, as warnings to the world, and it called the world to repent. Uh, that was the function, the role of the trumpets. The bowls, on the other hand, are uh, the execution of total judgment where all hope of repentance is gone, okay? It's too late. Uh, in the case of the trumpets, only one-third of living things were affected. It was a partial judgment. But in the uh, bowls, there is total destruction, okay, 100%. In the trumpet judgments, man was not affected until the fifth trumpet. But in the bowl judgments, man is afflicted from the very beginning of the process. So with that said, let's look at these seven bowls. Bowl number one is found in verse 2, Revelation 16, verse 2. The first angel, he went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and severely painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. And so you're going to find that each one of these bowls has a target. This one is the earth, but... To be more specific than that, it's those on the earth who have the mark of the beast, either on the hand or the forehead, and they have worshipped his image. That is the target of this first bowl judgment. And what do they experience? What happens? They have these severely painful sores and uh, that break out upon them. Uh, that is the first bowl judgment. Let's look at the second one in verse 3. The second, referring to the second angel, poured out his bowl into the sea. Okay, so now, now the target is the sea. And it turned to blood like that of a dead person, and all life in the sea died. Not a third, okay? All. So now everything in the sea is what? Worthless, basically. Okay, it's turned to, uh, to blood, and everything in it has, has died. Then you have the third bowl. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water. So the sea, obviously, is salt water. And rivers and springs of water under the third bowl would be your fresh water. So there's, I guess you could say there's a distinction there. So the third bowl was poured out into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood as well. And then here's this unique dialogue that's thrown in for good measure. Uh, John says, I heard the angel of the waters say. So this particular angel, this third angel that has poured out this third bowl, he heard him say, you are just the Holy One who is and who was. Now, stop right there. We've, we've already caught this once in Revelation when it came up before I mentioned it to you. In the beginning of the book of Revelation, we're told that there around the throne of God are these living creatures who go, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, right? And then we read just a few chapters back, just a few weeks ago, were who is and who was, and it leaves out the to come part. Why? Because he showed up. Well, now here are the seven last plagues 
that complete the wrath of God. And here he is the angel saying to God, you are just the Holy One who is and who was. And it doesn't say who is to come because guess what? It's time. Payday is here, okay? So you are just the Holy One who is and who was because you have passed judgment on these things. Because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And then, and then John says, I heard the altar say, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now, I don't think the altar talked. I think the people that are gathered at the altar is what he heard. And we know going back to Revelation 5 or 6, that um, during one of the seals, the, the martyred saints are there at the altar crying out, God, how much longer? Okay, how much longer? And they're told to wait. Well, now the wait is over. And so here is this angel. If you're wondering why is all the water in the world turning to blood, first the salt water in the sea, now the fresh water in the, in the rivers and the springs of water. Why is all this water turning to blood? <clears throat> the angel tells you, God, you're just, you're holy. You have passed judgment on these things. What kind of judgment? Uh, because they, okay, the, the, the people in the world that have persecuted uh, the saints and, and poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, you're giving them blood to drink. So an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, God is giving them what they deserve. Uh, the people that are God-haters and that are against Christ, that have murdered people that live for God, now they are going to have to drink blood because that's the only option. You've given them blood to drink. They deserve it. That's what the angel says in verse 6. And then the way I see it, he says, I heard the altar say, well, who's at the altar? I believe it's the martyred saints that were crying out earlier in the book. And they say, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Um, that's <clears throat> kind of like what we said a while ago, thank God for answered prayer. <laughs> uh, well, that's what they were doing in effect. So that's the first three bowls. Now, let's uh, go on to the fourth bowl and then we'll... We'll stop for a moment, or maybe it's the fifth one, but go to the fourth bowl, the next bowl, in verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. Now, again, each time there's a target, whether it's the, uh, the people that have the mark of the beast that worship his image, whether it's the sea, the salt water in the sea, or the fresh water in the rivers and the springs of water, now the target is the sun. So now this fourth bowl is poured on the sun, and it says it was allowed, the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. And people were scorched by the intense heat. So they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. Now, something I wrestled with a long time ago when I was a new believer was this whole idea of judgment, you know, and why it has to be this way, and why there has to be a heaven and a hell. And, and then you begin to learn more about the heart of God. You know, Peter said that God's not willing that 
any should perish, but he wants all to come to, you know, a knowledge of the truth and, a, and, and to a place of repentance. And, uh, and then you still wonder, you know, why does it have to be this bad and why does it have to end this way? And I think here, you know, the, the way the King James puts it, God is long-suffering, okay? I've always liked that word. That's probably my favorite King James word, uh, Herman, is long-suffering, okay? And God is long-suffering. He gives us, I mean, He's very patient with us. He knows that we're, you know, that the, the, we were formed by His mere breath. Uh, he knows that we're created in His image. He, he loves us, and He's giving us every opportunity in the world to, to repent and get right with Him before it's too late. These bold judgments, as we go through them, I think you're going to see, they justify... God's hatred of sin, and they justify the fact that it has to be this way. Uh, what you see is this, and we'll talk a little bit about this later, but sin, we learn from the book of Hebrews, sin is very deceptive. Sin hardens our heart to God, okay? And when you say no to God over and over and over again and again and again, it will harden your heart to the point to where you can hate God. And here, here, the people of the world that don't know God, these same people that were targeted in, in the first bowl that have the mark of the beast and they've worshipped His image, now they're experiencing this scorching uh, with fire from the sun, this intense heat, and they blaspheme the name of God. They don't have anything good to say about God. And here's the thing. It says, God who has the power over these plagues. So they're, because they're blaspheming His name, they are aware that He's there. They're aware that He is real. They are aware that He has the power over this, that He could stop it. And rather than making a cry for help and an appeal to Him, what do they do? Instead, they insult Him, they blaspheme Him, and they did not repent of their works. That shows you the condition of their heart, okay? They are hardened toward God. Um, I like what Herschel Hobbes says at this point. He says, the, the progress of these first four bowl judgments upon nature and their cons consequent judgment upon man reaches its zenith in this judgment. As the center of our solar system, the sun is the source of all physical and natural life, but instead of being a blessing, it becomes a curse. This judgment encompasses the whole scope of natural life. Even God's universe itself fights against God's enemies on the side of His people. In other words, God is now using creation itself to, to make a point. Okay, He's using the waters, the sun, and all this. The fact that the wicked only grow more so in the face of such judgment serves to demonstrate that God's only answer is total judgment. Now let me read that last sentence that Hobbes said because I think it's good. He says, The fact that the wicked only grow more so in the face of such judgment serves to demonstrate that God's only answer is total judgment. You know, some of you are teachers, a lot of you have been parents. If you've ever had to deal with an unruly child or an unruly person, there comes a point to where talk isn't helping. 
You know what I'm talking about. You've, you've seen that. I'm sure you've seen that at some point, whether it's in your personal life or somebody else. You've seen a, a person that, that had a bad attitude, that was not open to correction, was not going to receive feedback. They, it was their way or no way, their way or the highway. And the more you talk with them, believe it or not, the worse it gets. Talking is not helping and as a result, ultimately, they have this defiant attitude. I almost think of that when I read this fourth bowl. Here are people that are so hardened toward God that they ought to be crying out to Him, but instead they're cursing Him. They're blaspheming His name. Well, that's how bad it is, and we're just at bowl number four, okay? Let's look at bowl number five beginning there in verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Again, we have a target. It's the throne of the beast. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Now, where have we heard that before? Some of these plagues go back to what? Egypt, that's right. And Pharaoh, okay? And so that's exactly what I was thinking of. So here, uh, this uh, bowl was poured out on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. And look at what people do. People gnawed their tongues because of their pain and, here you go, blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they did not repent of their works. Do you see how hardened it is? Here's what, what disturbs me, I guess, the most. When someone gets hardened, they tend to stay that way. You've heard the saying, set in your ways. Uh, when someone gets hardened, they tend to stay that way. Now, God can do anything, but because these are seven judgments, it's, it's too late for that. They're, they're hardened, and they continue to be hardened. They continue to blaspheme God uh, because of what they're going through. It's his fault, and they refuse to acknowledge any, any responsibility whatsoever. They refuse to repent of their works. Um, wow. Um, I don't know who said this, but um, here's a quote I found. The beginning of sin is to forsake God. The end of sin is to be God forsaken. Think about that. The beginning of sin is to forsake God. That's how it starts. And the end of sin is to be God forsaken. That's where it leads. And that's exactly what has happened to the world at this point. Then we have the sixth bowl. Verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. Okay, so we're speaking metaphorically here because he, he didn't say they were frogs. He said like frogs, okay? Like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, and from the mouth of the false prophet. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world. Okay, 
So at first it mentions kings from the east, verse 12. Now it talks about kings of the whole world. To assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Now there's a lot of days you can mark on a calendar. That's a big one, isn't it? The great day of God the Almighty. That's a big one. Look. Now, this, this is great. I love this because at that point you're going, wow, this is heavy. And then out of nowhere, Jesus is talking. How do I know that? Because look what he says. Look, I am coming like a thief. Who has said that before? Jesus. Okay? So Jesus inserts himself into this moment. And he says, look, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. And so they assembled the kings at the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Now there's a lot here. I'm going to try to keep it simple for you. Or at least I had to keep it simple for me. Um, One commentator says this sixth plague shows the preparations for the final battle, the battle of Armageddon. And he says aspects of this same battle have already been described in one way or another. Uh, The kings and all kinds of people cluster together in Revelation 6.15. The army beyond the Euphrates is summoned in Revelation 9.14. The beast fights against the saints in Revelation 11.7 and Revelation 13. And then there's more descriptions to come in chapters 17, 19, and 20. And these later passages describe the battle with increasing detail okay, and precision, all based on this eschatological battle of Gog and Magog that goes back to Ezekiel 38 and 39. Okay? And I won't be going to Ezekiel tonight. Now, what you do need to know is... Uh, what this uh, commentator says, he says, not all interpreters, uh, not all interpreters agree. Imagine that about these various passages that describe the same battle. But once we appreciate the theme of Revelation and the pattern of seven, all leading up to the second coming, the the theme unity of the passages becomes a strong point to their unity. And he raises the question. How many last battles can there be on the great day of God Almighty? And he references um, Revelation 16, 14, Revelation 6, and Revelation uh, 15, which is interesting. So at any rate, there's going to be a final battle that illustrates the rebellious, defiant attitude of the world that refuses to follow God. And that happens near the end. Now, what's interesting to me is that at this point, let's kind of just back up for a minute and put ourselves in this situation. If, uh, if we're living at this time and we see all this going on, you could go, man, this is it. Where is Jesus? And here he comes right there in verse 15. Look, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so he may not go around naked and people see his shame. And so he calls us to arms. He calls us to be faithful. 
He calls us to be alert and to remain clothed, not to compromise ourselves. Uh, this beatitude that he mentions, blessed is the one, is one of seven different beatitudes in the book of Revelation. And he calls us to, to uh, be faithful. Uh, this is no time for followers of Christ to be lulled to sleep by the ways of the world, but to be faithful to him. Now, the word uh, in Hebrew, Armageddon, uh, one thing before we go on to the next one, uh, this is the uh, only time in, in uh, the New Testament where this is mentioned. I thought that was neat. I, I looked up uh, Michael Kukendall where he has all these... Uh, He's compiled all this stuff from Revelation over the years, and he says Armageddon refers to the one final consummate battle at the end of history that immediately precedes the second coming of Christ. He says Armageddon is mentioned by name in the Bible only once, right here in Revelation 16, verse 16. He says many attempts have been made to decode this word, and most agree with the definition that it literally means mountain of Megiddo, okay? Uh, Megiddo was associated with important Old Testament battles. But since there's no mountain, if you were to look it up on a mountain in Israel, there's no mountain at Megiddo, a lot of people tried to come up with interpretations. When I read it, there's like eight or more. And I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole. So uh, I backed up and looked at it again. And then uh, Kendall has a, an important point. He says, just like other uh, names in the in the Revelation. In other words, just like other uh, names of places in Revelation that are used in a code type way, like a place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Okay, kind of like has a code condemnation to it. So does Babylon. So does Egypt. So does Sodom. So does Euphrates. The way he uses them in Revelation, uh, it may or may not uh, uh, focus on a geographic place, but it certainly points and marks a final battle, a big event that we need to be aware of. And so that's all that I will say about that. And then you have the seventh bowl, okay? The seventh bowl, verse 17. Uh, John's seeing all these bowls, and now we're at the seventh one. And in verse 17, John says, And then the seventh bowl, or, or then the seventh angel, excuse me, poured out his bowl into the air. Again, each time a bowl is poured out, it has a target. So he pours the bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. Well, I think we know who said that, don't we? I mean, it paints the picture. Who's talking? The Lord God Almighty. Uh, he is in the temple. He is on the throne, and he says, It's done. Or the way I would say it, that's it, okay? Or as Porky Pig would say, that's all, folks, right? I mean, it's over now. And so there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake occurred like no other since people have been on the earth, so great was the quake. It's going to shatter the Richter scale. Okay, the great city, uh, and I believe he's talking about Babylon. It's it's going to unfold before us in the next 
couple of chapters, particularly 18. He says, The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered in God's presence. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Every island fled, and the mountains disappeared. Now, I think that's, that's a pretty big earthquake if the mountains go... Okay? Enormous hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell from the sky on people. All I can say is, ouch. And they, what did they do? Blaspheme God for the plague of hell because that plague was extremely severe. Why are we surprised? They've already blasphemed Him twice, and here they go again. Uh, it shows how hardened people become when they choose sin over God. Now, notice he says that the seventh bowl is going to create a severe earthquake like no other that's ever happened before. And that got me to thinking about Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, we're warned about this shaking that's going to happen. In Hebrews 12, 25, the author says, See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You know, our God is a consuming fire. And he is going to judge sin. He will not tolerate unrighteousness. And just as he has shaken the earth in the past, he's going to shake it once more. But it's going to be a whole lot of shaking because he's going to shake it like never before. He's going to shake the heavens and the earth. And only what cannot be shaken will remain. Now, let's, uh, let's talk about this for a minute. This is some heavy stuff, unless you're used to reading apocalyptic literature like this in the book of Revelation in the Bible. Uh, we usually don't really dwell on this stuff much. I mean, the images uh, and the ideas, they're kind of heavy. And when we really ponder what, the, uh, what, what they're telling us and the picture that they paint, there is a payday, as R.G. Lee said years ago, someday, okay? There is a a day of accounting, a day of reckoning that every one of us will have one day when we stand before God. And so, as I was thinking about this lesson tonight, I wanted to, I wanted to give you a couple answers to this question. Why should we be concerned about God's wrath? Okay? I mean, that's what these seven bowls represent. They are the completion of God's wrath upon the earth. So why should we be concerned about God's wrath? Well, I'll tell you why. Number one, because God sees. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Proverbs uh, 15, 
3, Proverbs 15, verse 3, says, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, observing the wicked and the good. In other words, God's not blind. He sees everything. God knows everything. And anything that's ever been done, guess what? He sees it. Okay? He knows. And um, uh, Hebrews 4, 12-13 tells us just how much He sees. He not only sees us, He can see through us. He can see in us. For the Word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from Him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Do you see that? God's got these penetrating eyes of fire and He can see everything about us, everything we've ever done. He knows us better than anyone. He can sort through the thoughts and intentions of our own hearts. God sees. That's why the world should be concerned about God's wrath. He really does see. And my next point is, not only does God see, but God will remember now, I had a, had a couple men that were brothers in a church uh, growing up, and we would talk sometimes, and uh, they told me one day, they said, Corey, we want to tell you what our dad did when we got in trouble. We would get a little rowdy. Boys do that. Mom had a hard time kind of keeping them in check, and she'd say, I'm going to tell dad when he gets home. No, no, no. I'm going to tell him. Dad come home from work and she'd tell him. And he'd look at him and he'd say, all right, boys, you're getting a whooping on Friday. And he meant it. If it was Monday, guess what happened? They got a whooping on Friday. He said, oh, Corey, we would beg, we would plead, just do it now, just do it now. Nope, you're getting a whooping on Friday. And then the rest of the week, Lord, let him forget, let him forget, let him forget. Friday came, guess what? Payday, he got it. Now, you look back at that, I look back at that, and I go, I'm, I'm glad I didn't have him as my dad. But, but, you know, he was teaching them something. You know, when you have a job and you work for a paycheck, you don't get your check right then. You don't say, oh, I worked an hour. It don't work that way, right? You wait to payday, and then you get the check. Let me put it another way. When we were kids, if we were told not to do something, to reinforce you know, positive behavior and punish when they do wrong, we immediately address the issue. I mean, you can tell a child, hey, don't touch that hot stove, you're going to get burned. And then if they dare to touch that hot stove, they immediately get burned, and they're like, boy, I'm not going to do that again, right? But then they grow up, they become an adult, and they begin to get into the world, and they see people doing this and people doing that, and, well, they're not following God, and they're not doing this, and they're not doing that, and they seem happy, and, you know, nobody seems to be bothering them. And, you, you know, that first time, it's kind of like when you're in college and you skip that first class. Not that I did that. Yeah, I did. And uh, you, you don't get struck by lightning. You're like, well, that wasn't bad. Maybe I can skip another class. 
until, you know, you realize, well, I can't do that. My point is, um, we, if we don't get immediate feedback, we tend to push the boundaries. And as adults, we have to learn that even though we can get away with something once or twice, and it doesn't seem to have any repercussions or any consequences, God has built this governing law in life that says whatever you sow, guess what? You're going to reap. You know, if you have a, uh, let's say we fill that baptistry full of water, and it can hold a lot, and then all of a sudden we just pull the plug on it. It's not going to drain in a minute, is it, Reese? It's going to take a while for all that to drain. The picture I'm trying to paint is this. A lot of times we have this attitude, if I do something wrong, it's like the hot stove. I immediately re realize I did something wrong. I feel the burn, and I'm like, ooh, I don't need to do that. But then we grow up in life, and we see people cheat and lie and all kinds of stuff, and they seem to get away with it. And we're like, well, how come, how come that? I thought it was supposed to work like that hot stove, you know, that hand. You, you immediately know you did something wrong. Somebody slaps you on the wrist, and you shouldn't do it again. How come they're getting away with it? How come it ain't bothering them? Well, when you take the plug out of that baptistry to let the water drain, it doesn't immediately go. It takes time for that water to go down. And God has built this process in life that whatever you sow, you reap. And whether you're sowing good stuff or bad stuff, it takes time for the fruit and the harvest to come. And you and I need to realize that not only does God see, but God remembers. And so just because people can live their whole lives and it looks like they get away with, you know, all that stuff that they did that didn't seem to bother them, there is a payday someday. And they will have to stand before God. So why should we be concerned about God's wrath? Well, God sees, God remembers. Notice, notice there um, in uh, Revelation 16, uh, the seventh bowl, there in verse 19, the great city split in three parts and the cities of the nation fell. Babylon the great was remembered in God's presence. In other words, God knew her sin and he didn't forget. He remembered. See, God sees, God knows, God will remember. Obadiah 1.15, For the day of the Lord is near against all the nations, and as you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. That's God talking to the world, saying, Look, I know and I remember. And it matters. King Solomon, one of the wisest men who ever lived, said in Ecclesiastes 3.17, I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, since there is a time for every activity and every work so there's going to be a day of reckoning and that's why hebrews says that just it's been appointed once for people to die and then the judgment death is an appointment judgment guess what is an appointment so when we realize that we realize that god sees god will remember and god will judge and that's why we should be concerned about god's wrath and where does this all lead? To an ultimate question 
Are you prepared to meet God? Because someday, one day, we're all going to meet Him. It's either going to be a rejoicing or it's going to be a time of reckoning. It can be a time of rejoicing because if you realize now that you are a sinner and you need to be saved and you come to Him humbly and ask Him to save you, He can and He will and He wants to. And then you can rejoice in your salvation and you can long for that day when He comes again. You can love and long for His appearing as it says in the New Testament. Or for those that don't know Christ and they just continue to do what they do and then when bad things happen, they just blame it on God and they refuse to repent okay, of their works. What a day of reckoning it will be when they stand before God with a hardened heart confronted with the reality of judgment. Whew. That's something that I think our world needs to hear today. I know it's not popular, but again, I'm just the mailman. I'm not the author here. He wrote the book. I'm just giving you the word. I'm giving you the message. And so my, my prayer tonight is, as we realize that God is in control, God's got a plan, and um, he, um, he is one day going to judge the world. You know, I was meditating on something earlier today, and it talked about why does God allow evil. And um, it was a really good article, very compelling. It had some, it, it, it dealt with bad reasons that people come up with to explain it. Then it went to the scriptures, and it just basically said that God, God can use evil for his own purpose. You know, it goes back to that free will thing, okay? God, God gave us free will. And he lets you make your decisions, and he'll even allow you to experience the consequences of your decisions. And then if you try to circumvent that process, then he will overrule you in the end when we all stand before God and we're held accountable for our actions, whether we like it or not. Uh, God is able to work through evil and to overcome evil. You know, crucifying Christ in one sense was an evil act. You know, an innocent man who never sinned, who never did anything wrong, and uh, they, they killed him like he was a criminal. And yet, he took that humbling experience, and it was part of God's plan, and now he's paid for the sins of the world. And uh, you look at Joseph. He was mistreated by his own family. And years later, when they reconcile, he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so God can work through all that. But there will be a payday someday, and there will be a day of judgment when everyone will be held accountable before God. And, you know, as we continue to go through Revelation and as we get closer to the end, I think that's something that we all need to be reminded of. And then when we look around the world today, we shouldn't be surprised that sinners sin. We shouldn't be surprised that people that, that hate God blaspheme Him and attack people who wear His name and stand for Him. We, we shouldn't be shocked. We shouldn't take it personally. What else do you expect when you read the book? But praise God, we have a wonderful, awesome God, a wonderful Savior who died for us, who brought us out of life of sin, 
And he says, one day I'm coming back. And I want to hold on to that hope, don't you? Well, let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. Thank you for this time and your word. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to take these things to heart. Lord, help us to be mindful of the fact, Lord, that you are in control. And just like Jesus said, it is finished on the cross. One day, when it's time for your judgment, you're going to say it's finished, it's done, it's over. Lord, we long for that day. And we thank you for the blood of the Lamb that was shed for our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.